Escape from Plan A. This is uh, this is your escape from Plan A for uh, for this week. Uh, this is your host Teen. I've got a special guest with me, um, the journalist Tim Shorrock. Tim, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, thanks for jumping on, man. Um, Tim is a journalist with The Nation. Um, he, he covers uh, a lot of um, global politics, uh, especially around East Asia and specifically Korea. And I really enjoy, Tim, I really enjoy your tweets. That's how I got to know your name. <laughs> Thank um, you. Yeah, you have, um, you have a position. I think that's what I really enjoy about what you do is like you, you're actually not coming from a place of nowhere. But um, a lot of the tweets that I've seen and a lot of the many, many articles that you've put out in The Nation and other places like New Republic about Korea to me are a breath of fresh air. Um, because they they take on a very specific, I would say, almost anti-imperialist and um, perhaps a, something that is more in line with the Korean left in terms of how you talk about the modern history and of, of Korea and the relationship that it has with America. So that's why I wanted to reach out to you. Um, so could you just kind of give the listeners a little bit of background about yourself and how you came to um, cover Korea in the way you do? Sure. Well, I was raised in Tokyo and Seoul, uh, mostly in Tokyo, actually, where my parents first went as missionaries after World War II. And my dad was doing church relief work in helping Japan after the war. And then he did the same thing in Korea after the Korean War. And uh, I happened to live in uh, South Korea and Seoul from 1959 to 1960. And I was old enough, you know, to follow what was going on. I was nine years old. And at the time in Korea, there was a revolution in 1960 against this very authoritarian leader who had led South Korea since 1948, uh, Sigmund Rhee. And uh, for the you know, it was it was a it was a political revolution led initially by students, and then you know many people joined in the streets, and and uh, it, it was amazing to me to see you know for for the really you know I read about you know in school you read about revolution, but this was actually something that happened sort of in front of my eyes, and the people rose up, overthrew a government that was unpopular and repressive, and you know you know, changed history that way. And uh, I always remembered that. This was April 19th, 1960, you know, a very key event in the history of modern uh, South Korea. And I, you know, so I, so I had this very deep interest in Korea, you know, from there and from living there. Uh, I also happened to be in South Korea in 1972 uh, at a time the, the when the first visits of North Korean dip diplomats ever came to South Korea, this was part of the Park Chung-hee era. And, uh, and at that time, Park Chung-hee and Kim Il-sung, the then leader of North Korea, uh, for the first time, you know, had, had, had negotiations to lead, to lead their, their idea was to lead toward unification. But I happened to be in Seoul the first time North Korean 
came through. And my, you know, growing up there, uh, you know, I knew a lot of, you know, you know, South Koreans who really despised uh, North Korea because of what had happened during the Korean War. And I always kind of assumed that there was this, you know, deep animosity between South and North. But what I was amazed to see through in my own eyes to see when these North Koreans came through, so many people in the streets of Seoul were joyous and crying and shouting with joy. And it was just, you know, I was like, wow, there was a deep feeling here about unification and the more, and, you know, re, re, ending this division because, you know, after all, Korea had been a united country for what, 5,000 years. And this is just, you know, the, the division is tragic and people have many, you know, relatives on the other side of the border. And uh, so for the first time, I really understood that there is this feeling of, you know, wanting to reunify their country again. And it, it gave me a really different perspective on on, on looking at Korea and, our, and the history of American involvement there. And, and uh, not long after that, um, after college, um, uh, it, a few years after college, I went to. I decided I wanted to go to graduate school and learn about the East Asia I had grown up in, right, uh, Japan and Korea. And so I went. I went to the University of Oregon and, and began to focus on modern South Korean history and specifically the the, the workers' movement and the uh, labor movement at a time in the '70s when South Korea was called a so-called economic miracle. And, you know, what I found and began to follow is that, you know, Korea, it was sort of built on the backs of workers, this so-called miracle. And there was a lot of, uh, you know, incredible suffering going on when workers uh, trying to, you know, organize for their rights and trampled on by the government and by the corporations they worked with. And, uh, you know, so I, at the time, and I was following, you know, South Korea very closely as I was working on my thesis and, um, you know, I had, I had come at this from a political perspective. I'd been really involved in the anti-war movement myself during the Vietnam War. And uh, so, you know, in the late 70s, as I was working on this degree, focusing on Korean labor and its role in, in the Korean economy, suddenly workers began, became the focus of the vast political movement against the dictatorship at that time. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, so... It's, you know, people may remember that in 1979, the dictator, Park Chung-hee, was assassinated uh, after 18 years of, of, of draconian police rule. Police and he was, a cl- he, sorry, he was a close, he was like sort of a favorite ally of the, of the Americans, right? Well, the, you or know. It, or is it a little more complicated than that? Uh, no, he was. And, and mm-hmm. you know, he, he, you know, I mentioned the 1960 revolution. That revolution, after the revolution, a much more progressive government took over, and and during that time, from 1960 to 61, many people in South Korea were saying, "Okay, let's end our division now, and let's, uh, you know, let's 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 start talking to our counterparts in the north, and let's let's make Korea a neutral country. Let's let's you know do something different. We we don't we no longer should be divided." And Park Chung-hee uh, instituted a coup d'etat in, in May 1961 and put a stop to any of that kind of discussion. And, and Park was, himself was trained in the Japanese colonial army and had served with the Japanese military during the colonial period and during World War II. And uh, so, you know, the U.S. 
the Kennedy administration quickly recognized him as as the de facto leader of South Korea. You know, he eventually you know shed his his uniform and you know ran for president, but he instituted a you know a, a very powerful authoritarian government led by his military, and and they're the ones who really pushed through you know the economic development, but at the same time while re, you know repressing their people. Yeah, let me let me ask you about that because. Um... And, 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 and being I, – I don't – I profess to have very little knowledge about modern Korean history and my interest in it, aside from being you know Chinese-American, I think there is a lot of intersection in terms of that history. But the um, – my interest in it is because I think that if you look at the sort of standard view that's out there, um, the sort of orthodox view – uh, I, sh- I should put it in America about South Korea versus North Korea. Um, I think it says a lot about American foreign policy generally. I think it says a lot about us as a country. And I think what we view there is that there's, it's very simplistic, but that there's a good Korea basically and a bad Korea. And I think we know which ones are which. And right. South Korea is uh, one of those uh, miracle economies, right? North Korea is hopelessly backwards. South Korea is free, it's wealthy, its people enjoy a very high standard of living and a lot of political freedom, whereas the North is stuck in this draconian, um, almost medieval kind of authoritarianism. And I remember, you know, back in the day, there there was this um, this sort of computer-generated satellite photo of the entire Earth at night called, like, Earth Lights or something. Right. And they... You know, the American media would always look at the Korean Peninsula going, look at the difference. You can tell where South Korea ends because that there's like this sharp drop-off where South Korea is this brilliant jewel at night, they would say, bathed in light. North Korea was completely dark. And that, that was basically offered as proof that, you know, sort of the American system of, you know, neoliberal capitalism was, was, was a, you know, was a wonder kind. It was... Um, did miracles, whereas the communism of China and of the Soviet Union, you know, just kept North Korea literally in the dark. That's more or less how we view things in that South Korea is constantly under threat by a North Korea that wants to invade it, take it over, and turn it into, um, you know, a version of itself, and that we're there to protect them from this sort of inevitable doomsday. That, I think, is the starting point, um, which I think tracks a lot of what we think about ourselves in other areas as well. I mean, um, not just Korea. And so what you're, you know, the way you've written about Korea and the history and Park Chung-hee and the authoritarianism of South Korea, et cetera, et cetera, seems to be very different than that simplistic picture. And, uh, in a, you know... You're talking about, you know, the sort of authoritarianism and, and, and oppressive dictatorships of South Korea. What about North Korea? Are there, are there um, misconceptions you think that, that we have about North Korea that should be dispelled? Well, you know, first is that, you know, there's this one of the sort of stock images is like, you know, you have this, they portray... A lot of Americans portray the leadership of North Korea as as irrational and crazy, even. And for some 
insane reason they th they want to threaten the United States with nuclear weapons, and we have to stop that. And that's that's above that's our priority, no matter what. And there's no you know look back at why they might have uh, built nuclear weapons in the first place. Uh, so, you know, you have to undo all this. You have to, like, explain history what led up to this. That's what's missing. Uh, the United States was the first power to introduce nuclear weapons into the Korean Peninsula after the Korean War. The United States, at one point, had hundreds and hundreds of nuclear weapons on carried on planes, uh, that some were on ships. And many of them were soldiers, U.S. soldiers had, like, you know, uh, small missiles that could shoot a nuclear nuclear weapon on there. They could carry it on their shoulder. Their shoulder. There was hundreds of these weapons, and of course, North Korea had been threatened. Uh, U.S. leaders have threatened North Korea with uh, nuclear annihilation a couple of times. Uh, you know, very. Finally, the U.S. press in the last few years has began to catch up with the history of the Korean War when the United States completely destroyed North Korea. I mean, completely firebombed it. You know, you know, hundreds of thousands of civilians were burned to death by U.S. bombing in the Korean War. That's what shaped my, you know, North Korea now. So, you know, their their anger of the, and fear of the United States is real, and that's the first thing, you know, people have to understand. And, you know, they started on the nuclear path, uh, perhaps in the late 1980s, but they have felt that they've been surrounded by, you know, this very powerful military force of the U.S. in the Pacific, in Japan, and in South Korea. And to survive as a country, uh, they needed to have some kind of weapon, some kind, some kind of strategic, you know, weapons that would protect them. And they look, you know, as, you know, say during the Bush, you know, when the U.S. invaded Iraq, uh, you know, remember, you know, President Bush you know, put North Korea on the so-called axis of evil. The U.S. invaded Iraq, uh, you know, supposedly to go after their weapons of mass destruction. Uh, and they didn't have them, but they invaded and occupied Iraq. And they and then when uh, they in, in Libya, you know, in the 1990 in the during the Clinton administration, during the during the Obama administration, you know they they talked uh, uh, Libya out of having uh, nuclear weapons, and then the U.S. and NATO overthrew uh, Gaddafi, and you know, it's a country in chaos now. And uh, North Korea looked at that and thought, you know, well, you know, we, we our nuclear weapons is how we protect ourselves from this kind of invasion and overthrow. And, you know, that's really why the U.S. is negotiating with them. And, you know, I think it's, it has been a deterrent force for them. Uh, so when the U.S. says to them, you have to get rid of all your weapons uh, without, you know, some kind of peace agreement or, you know, without anything else, then they're not going to do that. So that's so important to, you know, understand that history. As far as, you know, the economics go, uh, you know, South North Korea was completely destroyed by the U.S. during the Korean War. South Korea, you know, was was pretty damaged too. There was lots of fighting there, and, and you know, the country was left you know poor and destitute. Many you know refugees, uh, you know, orphans. That's the South Korea I grew up in. Uh, but you know, after after the Korean War, it was the North Korean economy that really 
grew in leaps and bounds until about the 70s. Um, you know, from during you know during the colonial period, uh, Japan had built a lot of the you know Japan controlled Korea as a colony from 1910 to 1945, and that's where a lot of the divisions were created between the southern part and the northern part. But in the northern part, they built industry. Chemical industries, engine engine industries, um, a, you know, solid industry that was all linked up with the Japanese Empire, right, in Manchuria and China, and Japan itself, and in South Korea it was just you know where they grew grain mostly and grew rice for the for 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 uh, Korea and also for Japan, the Japanese Empire. So, you know, during the seventies, the North Korean economy actually quite advanced quite a bit, and in the South, which was um, you know. Uh, very poor. And then by the end of the 50s, the U.S., you know, the U.S. occupied, directly occupied uh, South Korea as a military force until 1948 when uh, when the Korean Republic of Korea was created and Sigmund Rhee was the, was the president. Then, there, of course, there was the Korean War. But in the period after that, the U.S. was like, okay, what, what do we do now with South Korea now that this war is over? And they began to uh, I written about this last year, and I did one very in-depth article for the Nation about it. Uh, the U.S. began to put a lot of pressure on South Korea, n not you know to say, okay, we're never going to be unified with North Korea. Now we had to, what? How are we going to grow economically? The only way to grow economically is to relink up with Japan, our former colonial overlord, and that's what happened in 1965. Uh, you know, after lots of U.S. pressure, Japan and South Korea signed a normalization treaty. As a result of that normalization treaty, billions of dollars of Japanese investment came into South Korea. And with that investment, uh, South Korean industrialists built the first stage of their, you know, export-led economy, you know, built with Japanese investment, helped build steel, automobiles, all kinds of, you know, clothing and garments, electronics. That was like where the first leap came in South Korea was from Japanese investment. Um, and, and so, you know, there's, there's, there's reasons that the economies developed in different ways. And then, of course, you know, after the 70s and 80s, you know, South Korean economy grew very rapidly. North Korea's economy uh, by the end of the 70s was was actually stronger in many ways than South Korea's economy in, in basic indices. There's a famous CIA report from about 1976 that showed North Korea ahead in steel and engines and all kinds of key indicators ahead of South Korea at that time. But, you know, in the, in the uh, 19, early, you know, 1991 was it when the Soviet Union collapsed and you know the Soviet Union had been this key ally of North Korea they weren't like you know pouring, pouring billions in the economy like Japan was in the south but Soviet Union provided North Korea with uh, low cost oil uh, good trading preferential treatment where they could sell their goods, their fairly advanced goods, you know, in, in Eastern Europe and in the, in the so-called, you know, Soviet bloc. And so they had this natural market, you know, from that. And then when the Soviet Union collapsed, their economy really went into a tailspin. They, they lost this low-cost low oil, uh, and they had to sort of start fending for themselves in terms of, uh, you know, scrapping by with to keep their economy afloat. And uh, so, you know, very different 
very different economic histories there. And, uh, you know, to, it, it, I just think it's uh, too much. Uh, it's like a cartoon kind of term to say, you know, one is good and one is bad. Yet South Korea has a, has a you know, fairly advanced democracy now, but it was built, uh, in, you know, in contrast to the kind of, you know, authoritarian state in North Korea. But that democracy was built and created by the people themselves in South Korea. That's what's so important. It wasn't like, mm-hmm. you know, right. the U.S. gave it to them. In fact, the U.S., played a critical role in blocking the development of democracy in South Korea by aiding that, you know, military government of Park Chung-hee and late after that, Chun Doo-won. So, you know, this, this is, you know, uh, many people, you know, Koreans have often said, you know, Korea is always caught between big powers, right? Uh, and, and, and that's very true. Yeah, I think that that's a point that I th- I feel is very important, at least um, for me as an American, is to understand that um, one of part of that view, that good Korea, bad Korea view, is that the Americans spread democracy, um, whereas the communists spread authoritarianism, and there's two there's two contentions there, and I think it's so easy for us to accept both of them. Um, as true, but if you dig into the history, it seems that the U.S. is, and it's a pattern that persists around the world, including in you know our support for, like, say, Saudi Arabia, that Americans are not particularly picky. We're we're not particularly picky about who we support and what kind of politics they have and whether they're compatible um, with what you know we would say we value at home, right? Right. And and this pattern was true in South Korea as well. I think Americans tend to be a little bit more cognizant of this when it comes to Saudi Arabia, just maybe because of the visibility of that. but And also just sort of the undeniability of it because of the current regime there. But in South Korea, like you said, because there was a successful pro-democracy, and I guess that would be considered a more leftist wing of um, South Korean politics, because that was largely successful on the backs of people, on the backs of the South Korean people, that that was like, as you said, in in opposition to dictatorships that we, America, were supporting. And I think that's, a, that's an inversion, I think, of what we tend to typically assume about our relationship with Korea. Am I- it, yeah, it's, it's very, it, it's, it's hard to, uh, I mean, South Korea from the late 40s until the breakthrough demonstrations that brought on democracy in the late 1980s was was really, an, in, in many ways, an awful, awful place in terms of human rights. I mean, you know, the U.S., when it occupied, had a military government in the, in the South and right after World War II, uh, it, it basically it put uh, many of the people that ran South Korea after World War II, after the, colla- after the collapse of the Japanese Empire and Japan's surrender, uh, the U.S. kept a lot of Japanese-trained officials in charge. And many of the Koreans who were running South Korea during the Sigmund Rhee and Park Chung-hee era were, had all been collaborators with the Japanese colonial power. And, you know, of course, you know, that created its own tension uh, inside South Korea. And so in the late 40s, before the Korean War began, before Kim Il-sung, uh, in consultation with 
the Soviet Union and, and Mao's China, you know, made the decision to invade and you know liberate in their in their view the entire peninsula. Before that happened, there was uh, enormous amount of violence in South Korea directed against people who did not want to have a divided country. Uh, who who fought against uh, this uh, you know pro Japanese uh, authoritarian government? Sorry, that would include Sigmund Rhee, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And you know many of his top people were all you know you know trained by the Japanese. The military that the, the South Korean army that the U.S. built in the late forties, almost all the top officers you know had served in the Japanese Imperial Army. And in fact, you know, during the Korean War, there was there was Korean generals on the South Side, you know, who were, uh, you know, who had fought with the Japanese against the communists in Northern Korea and Manchuria, you know. So, you know, these these this this history goes goes back a long way. But, you know, that I you know, the, the the dictatorship of Rhee and, and Park was 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 just you know, I mean, I call it it was a torture state. I mean, what sparked the democratic movement in 1987 uh, where you know millions of people poured into the streets of Seoul and lots of cities in South Korea was the death by torture of a young uh, you know student you know organizer who had you know who, who died from water torture and and that was kind of like the it was sort of like the last straw like people were just like we got it we cannot have a society like this anymore and you know in the late late 1940s People who have ever been to Jeju Island in the south part of Korea, the biggest island off South Korea, uh, you know there was an uprising in Jeju against uh, against Ri and the, and the pro Japanese Japanese trained uh, governor and police that that they had installed in Jeju, and that was a very bloody uprising that the U.S. led a counterinsurgency uh, movement against that uprising, uh, the estimates of people killed on Jeju were, you know, maybe 20,000, 30,000, about a third of the island was wow, killed. Wow, that's horrendous. That's, and, you know, wow. yeah, it's, it's, mm -hmm. and that's something Americans know zero about. And, and, you know, if you, if you go to Jeju, there's an amazing, uh, 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 it, it, you know, it's, it's a museum dedicated what they call a four, three uprising. Uh, and, they show very clearly in that in that museum the U, the role of, of U.S. generals in, in in sort of masterminding the counterinsurgency, and you know it's it's uh, people are still trying to get justice. I mean, there was the, the thing was like when this happened in the 40s and the 50s, uh, when there was that kind of counterinsurgency wars within South Korea, anyone connected with uh, the rebels, uh, the you know the rebellion. Would be was deemed a, they're labeled a communist throughout you know 40s 50s 60s 70s, and and so families were labeled as communists as Reds, and they couldn't you know get jobs and it was just you know there's just this a lot of uh, you know severe repression of those kind of people, and and you know many there was lots of tr fraudulent trials where they would accuse groups of being pro North Korean communists and. And execute them, and you know th that that kind of thing went on for years, and so you know that that's why there was there's this very strong resi you know resistance and pro democracy movement 
sprang out of in South Korea. That's what that's what it was all about. And and you know so uh, during all that time, of course, you know especially during the Park Chung Hee years, uh, the U.S. you know was providing them with you know millions of dollars of you know military equipment, and of course he was maintained its bases there. And uh, and as you know, the, the reason you wanted to talk to me originally is, was about the article I wrote about the whole sort of military prostitution system that was set up by the South Korean government and the U.S. military yes. for American soldiers. And so this is the kind of history that a lot of Koreans are aware of, but Americans have no inklings of whatsoever. Yeah, let's 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 pivot a little bit. Um, I want to step back for a sec, just because the picture you're paint, painting here, um, in talking to in talking to us here, and also in your articles, is one that is um, very eye opening to me. Uh, I think the problem for me and a lot of other Americans is this sort of moral relativism that creeps into the way we discuss foreign policy, because as you're you know, as you're listing all of the, um, you know, abominations that happened um, in South Korea by the government there with tacit or sometimes, ex you know, explicit U.S. support, th there's always this thought in our head of, well, at least it's not North Korea. At least they're not mm -hmm. feeding people to dogs. At least they don't have, you know, um, the whole entire country is in a giant prison labor camp and, and all these things. And I think... It, it starts to become clearer to me over time that we do this. Um, we need a sort of image of a completely morally depraved other um, in order to excuse some of the things that occur with our supporter under our watch. And the right. picture that seems to emerge here is you could frame this history as the Kim clan from Kim Il-sung on down to the present day uh, were sort of uh, committed anti-Japanese, anti-imperialists um, to, to, to sort of to the core of, of you know, of their politics. Uh, whereas the South Korean government that was installed was largely a continuation of Japanese empire and essentially, the Americans seem to have, from what I'm hearing and reading, subrogated the role of Japan as sort of, you know, the 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 overlord here, and kept a lot of the machinery in place. And the article that um, caught my eye was it's, it's it's in the New Republic. I am going to link to it for sure in the show notes, and everyone should go read it. It's called "Welcome to the Monkey House." Monkey House is a reference um, to uh, a brothel uh, in in Dongducheon is that the way to say it? It's a, well, actually, uh, it's not. A, it's not a brothel. It was a. It was basically a military uh, hospital. Oh, where, sorry. Uh, yeah. You know, so, so it was a. It was actually a jail for 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 women. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. We should. Like, like, I, I want you to clarify. You know, just sort of give right. the details on the article, but. But the thing that struck me was, and this article really lays out. Um, lays out the history of a sort of smooth or continuous transition from the sort of comfort women uh, system of uh, under the Japanese. And I think that that should, I think everyone should be aware of what that is um, into a similar system called the Kijichan, right. which uh, w sort of provided the same function 
with respect to the U.S. military occupation. And when you sort of seem to make that connection in this article, uh, it was very mind-blowing to me uh, because the comfort woman issue is something that uh, everyone understands is um, is one of the great moral outrages that's gone unsettled, not just in East Asia, but in the world. Right. Uh, but it doesn't seem to be that we're as far away from that system as we think we are. And so that's what I was getting from your article. And I was wondering if maybe you could talk a little bit about Monkey House Mm -hmm. and that history. Well, in 2018, I went to, I was in Korea a couple of times, South Korea. And I went to uh, this city called Dungducheon, which is uh, about um, maybe an hour and a half uh, subway ride from downtown Seoul. It's very close to the DMZ. And it's the it's the city that surrounds uh, the last U.S. base near the DMZ. It's called Camp Casey, a U.S. Army base. It's been occupied by the U.S. Army since the end of the Korean War. Uh, first, it was the U.S. Seventh Division. Then Nixon withdrew the Seventh Division in 1971, and the the troops there at that Camp Casey were replaced by the. U.S. Second Infantry Division, and the, and, and the elements of the U.S. Second Infantry Division are still there. And so what happened was, that, you know, after the Korean War, you know, there's all these, uh, you, you, you know, U.S. bases, U.S. took over all these former Japanese bases, right? Uh, like in anyone who's been to Seoul, you know, where the Yongsan was the, Yongsan was the big uh, U.S. base there until it was recently handed back over to the ROK, uh, but that was a big Japanese base, and the U.S. just took it over. Um, and they did that with a lot of bases. There's bases all over South Korea in, in the, after the Korean War. And so, you know, the country was destroyed, partly destroyed in the Korean War. There's lots of poverty. People would flock to the people would flock to the towns uh, near the bases to get you know to, to get any kind of work they could. And you know, of course, you know, lots of lots of women would go there because they knew there was this appetite, you know, for for sexual services. And and so, but it was it was actually you know formalized. So so what happened was, um, you know, because uh, you know initially, um, you know, like I mentioned earlier, there had been Japanese trained officials in the Korean government. They 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 knew all about the comfort the comfort stations that the Japanese army had built all over Asia. Right, the, many of these these comfort stations were built for. For you know, they they would they would kidnap women, uh, and so they were basically transformed into sexual slaves for Japanese soldiers. And they had these comfort stations all over you know China. Um, you know, whenever the Japanese troops would move, the comfort stations would go with them. And so at first, you know, the the the, the uh, South Korean government uh, sort of had the same kind of uh, governments you know supplied. Um, prostitutes. Uh, but then the, the, the U.S. kind of, uh, like it did much later, privatized a lot of uh, military government functions. And so they created these sort of privately owned uh, kichijong, which were you know basically bars and restaurants around U.S. bases, and where women would come and work as prostitutes. A lot of these women were uh, you know, very poor. Some of them were tricked into working as prostitutes. Many of them thought they were coming for other kinds of jobs. 
you know, but but it was a desperate situation. And in that, in that, in what they what the Korean government did was, you know, built this system, and then the, these camp towns, so called, like you know, uh, Dongducheon around Camp Casey, uh, U.S. military patrols would you know go all around the town, and and when uh, uh, venereal disease became a big problem for U.S. soldiers in in South Korea, uh, the the Kore the Korean government built these uh, built these you know basically military prison hospitals uh, where they would they would round up Korean women that were uh, that were USGIs would say that woman gave me the clap or that woman gave me VD whatever they'd round them up bring them by force they were not free to go they were taken by force to these to these houses which were eventually called monkey houses where they were pumped full of antibiotics like penicillin, you know, to, you know, cure them, quote unquote. Once they were cured after they were there for four or five weeks, whatever, they were sent back into the, sent back into these, you know, basically these privatized brothels and where they worked before. Um, but this was a really cruel system. And the way that the women were, were treated by GIs was, was reprehensible. And as I wrote in the article, you know, the, 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 the um, you know, the, what really, you know, angered people was happened in, uh, happened in, uh, was in 1992 when there was a, a, a young woman in, uh, prostitute in Dongducheon was murdered very, you know, very brutal fashion by a GI from, American GI from Camp Casey. And, um, that was just kind of, you know, many, many South Koreans just snapped at that. Like, we cannot have this anymore, or, or you know, people treated like this. And um, so there's this, you know, but but it's been it's been it, it, it was very it was a big issue in the 1990s. But and after actually there was a lot of uh, uh, you know publicity around around the murders in in the towns like that. A lot of the Korean prostitutes. Uh, you know, didn't work there, you know, just kind of left the, left the whole scene, the industry. And, and as I wrote in the article, they've been replaced by, um, you know, Russian or Bangladesh, women from Bangladesh or, you know, South Asia, Thailand, Philippines, other places. But this system was very different. You know, like a lot of people say, well, what's the difference between that and the mil you know, the prostitution and other places where the U S has bases like the Philippines like you know um, uh, Thailand, um, and 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 the answer is that you know in those countries it wasn't the government that was you know setting up the system. In, in South Korea, the, the government actually you know set up this system in negotiations with the U.S. military, and um, it's a it's a tragic story. And and some of these women uh, are you know that you know have have uh, filed lawsuits. Because they say when they were taken to the monkey house, their rights were deprived, and, and you know their rights were deprived. They they were not allowed to leave. Uh, they were taken against their will. Uh, many women died there because of the the, the the use of penicillin and the drugs was 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 extreme, much higher than you, that they should have received. And uh, so you know there's been a there's been a lawsuit that's worked its way through the court system where 
And there was finally a decision a couple of years ago where a high court in Seoul agreed that, you know, these these women were largely involuntary and, they had, and that this had been government-sponsored and that they therefore deserved to be, uh, you know, to receive... Uh, compensation for what happened to them. Yeah, I want to read. I want to read from uh, just excerpt from your article here. You, okay. you do mention this. Uh, you say there's a, there was a lawsuit seeking reparations for on behalf of 122 former sex workers. It's by a um, a, a group called the Lawyers for a Democratic Society. There was a partial. You said there was a partial victory that the that the case worked its way up to an appellate court in Seoul. So I don't know if that means that there's there, there this could still be overturned or not. It could go to see. the Supreme. You know, it's it's going to go it's going to go to the Supreme Court at some point. I see. So it's not quite the story's not quite over yet with not respect over. to this lawsuit. Right. But there was a victory in the appellate court, and you said that in a sweeping decision in February of 2018. So this was very recent. Mm-hmm. Um, Lee, the judge, uh, Lee Lee Bumgyun, ruled that the Korean state quote operated and managed the military camp towns to contribute to the maintenance of a military alliance essential for national security and abetted the industry through patriotic education, praising prostitutes as, quote, patriots who bring in foreign currency. I assume this was all based on evidentiary. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, it was, these were evidentiary findings. And uh, is, 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 that this, is that the story that you think is actually happening, that there was a very high level understanding that these uh, that these camp towns were necessary in order to entice the U.S. to stay because oh yeah it's 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 very clearly out there yes and so that 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 kind of infers that there has been for a while at least some reluctance of the United States to actually maintain a presence in 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 Korea and that that there there was a that there was like I guess an intentional program by the South Korean government to keep the United States there despite sometimes reluctance? Is that... Well, the, part, partly... You think about it? Actually, the, the, uh, these, these monkey houses, uh, most of them were built in the 1970s. And what, you know, as, earlier in the interview, I mentioned that in 1971, uh, a large division of the U.S. Army was, was yanked out of South Korea. That was by President Nixon. Uh, and, and that was about, you know... A third, more than a third of the total U.S. presence. It was a large number of soldiers were pulled out of South Korea, and Park Chung Hee at the time, you know, Nixon at the at that time, Nixon was like talking about you know starting to withdraw from Vietnam, right? South Vietnam, and uh, so and normalizing relations with China at the same time. Right, right. There was this whole change going on, and so like Park Chung Hee. And his government got really freaked out that the U.S. was going to withdraw every, you know, all its soldiers from South Korea, and so they, they, you know, came up with ways to deal with con- U.S. concerns, like you know, say the high rate of, you know, sexually transmitted disease, uh, and and you know, crack down on the prostitution, uh, crack down on the prostitutes. It was always a crackdown on the women, not not the men. You know, like men were, it was laughable. You know, there was no controls put on U.S. soldiers. I mean, they, they would hand out, you know, condoms or whatever. But like, I remember these women and the lawyers for Democratic Society have put together a tremendous amount of evidence. Uh, they've gone into, you know, U.S. archives, National Archives here, the, the 
Korean National Archives to, to put, put this information together. It's a very impressive set of, ev set of evidence they have. And I remember, you know, I report in the story how they, they gave a presentation in New York um, in, in, in 2018 uh, to two of the lawyers who, who were there, there along with a, a couple of researchers who'd done a lot of the research for the lawsuit. And like, you know, they were saying, they, one of the things they said was that, you know, uh, they found this. They they had found this book by this American soldier who who'd written about his experience with this, and like they would get lectures from army chaplains, right? You know, don't uh, you know, don't have sex with underage girls, and you know, wear a con, you know, have condoms, et cetera, et cetera. You know, told to be careful. And then this, you know, this this chaplain himself had like three girls, you know, that that were, you know, living in his house. They all knew that it was complete right. hypocrisy, right? Right. Uh, so, so um, you know, it was really focused on on these women, and 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 it, it was so. As I say in the article, a lot of people are, you know, they saw it as a real shameful chapter, um, but it's really the the, the criticizing. Uh, American American forces in South Korea is sometimes it's people are really um, reluctant to to come out and, and and you know come out and strongly against the U U.S. forces presence and it's a complicated debate there. But the fact is that this you know the story is out there and interestingly you know, a couple of weeks ago I was at a forum here in Washington and I on a, a Korean uh, a guy who works at a at a South Korean government uh, foundation, uh, you know, came out to me and told me how much he appreciated my article. But he said, uh, and this is a guy who grew up, you know, he's Korean and grew up in South Korea. He, he never really knew about this, right? It, 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 he was astonished by how much the story had been hidden uh, from, from, you know, from people like, you know, the ordinary Koreans. And he was really grateful, you know, to have, to have it, you know, exposed in this, in this way. Yeah. I mean, I remember, the president, pa, pa, I, I, I'm terrible with Korean pronunciations, but Park Geun Hye, he, I guess the she's the uh, Park Geun Hye. She's, she's the daughter of Park Jung Hee, right? That's right. And she was the president prior to Moon Jae In, and yeah, she was basically removed from office um, in what amounted to a kind of um, democratic overthrow of her regime. And this was at a time when I think, um, and I just want to know if I'm, I'm interpreting this correctly, but this was at around the time when Obama had sort of secretly brokered this, quote, final settlement of the issue of comfort women between Japan and Korea. Right. And uh, I remember seeing the settlement as rather ridiculous. It was a paltry sum of like $8 million dollars. And um, I mean, that's like a personal lawsuit in America right. and and like a private phone call uh, in which uh, Abe would uh, apologize um, off sort of off the record mm -hmm. and that that was seen as sort of like necessary from the American side because we were trying to get this TPP thing going and we had this this Korean Japan beef, we call it. It was was just a pain in our ass. And can we just get get over it? Right. And. When I read this article, I was like, you know, that's an incredibly hypocritical uh, and, and evil thing to say uh, when, you know, our own history in 
in Korea is the record there is really not much better on this issue. Um, and for us to just simply see it as uh, oh Korean Japanese beef from the past, can you all please get over it? Look, just pay them eight, just pay them a few million bucks and have a phone call. And can we please move on with our trade agreement? Um, is the sort of sort of a historical uh, and cavalier attitude about the past that I think um, is kind of infuriating. I mean, it's 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 really it's really objectionable. <laughs> You know? Well, you know, the reason that that agreement was, of course, you know, after Moon Jae-in was elected and took over as president, uh, they they rejected that agreement because, yeah, and, and you know, what Koreans were really angered about was that the women themselves, all these comfort women, many of whom are dying off, very, very few of them left, but these women who had come out so bravely for years to talk about what they suffered under the Japanese, they were not even consulted. They had no no input whatsoever into that agreement. That was what was really shameful. And, and uh, you know, the fact, I mean, the thing is, yeah, the Obama administration pushed it through because they needed, you know, this Japan-South Korean military alliance with the U.S. And that was the overall, that was, you know, that was the, that's what drove it. And uh, so, you know, I won't even get into Obama. I think Obama was, was terrible on, on, on Korean issues overall. And, and, you know, I think uh, his policies, you know, helped create the crisis that, that you know, emerged in, in 2017 after, after Trump was elected. But uh, his attitude for, for to, he, 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 he had a lot of misconceptions about, um, about South Korea uh, and, its, and, its, and its history. And so and his advisors did as well. And you can see, uh, you know, just as a side, you know, the other day in uh, the, the presidential debate um, uh, with with the Democrats, you know, Joe Biden, who was his vice president, comes out with this really ignorant stuff about. Oh, I saw that. About, yeah. you know, oh, we should like, you know, force Japan and Korea back together again because they've had this dispute over the last, you know, couple of years around wartime comp compensation for laborers who were forced to work in Japanese factories during World War II, right? And, you know, Biden's acting like, you know, the U.S. somehow has, can, can just, it, 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 there's no historical, it's just because Trump, you know, let them drift apart or something, you know, and the U.S. can just order them back together. You know, it's just this arrogant view that, you know, South Korea is this, and actually this arrogant view of many American policymakers that both South Korea and Japan are kind of, you know, recalcitrant children and, you know, they're, they're just sort of wayward, you know, got you know, to bump their heads to get them to, you know, stop fighting and this, this kind yeah. of attitude when there's real historical reasons for, for the division. And the fact is the Japanese government under the Liberal Democratic Party, which as my father used to say is neither liberal nor democratic, the ruling party in Japan under Abe has been outrageous in, in, in like, you know, pretending that, the, you know, the, the comfort women were all there, you know, as they're, they're, you know, willingly there. There wasn't such a thing as sexual slavery, uh, denial of their war crimes, denial of Japan's role, the cruelty of the of Japanese forces in, in, in the colonial period in World War II. Uh, you know, this real historical denial in Japan. And, um, you know, that's something that, that's, that, that's, that's very, you know, it's still very current. And you can still see 
these Japanese uh, officials, I call it LDP Japan because it's it's the conservative party that's ruled Japan for so long, but they still say the most outrageous things. They go visit the Yasukuni Shrine where, you know, Japanese war criminals are buried and, um, you know, that past is still very present for a lot of Koreans. As for as for Chinese as well. Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah and, I, yeah, and I think, you know, it's, I often think of this idea that America defeated its sort of World War II foes is kind of, it might even sometimes be better to say that we did a very, very extremely hostile takeover of them <laughs> and sort of continued their policies because, um, you know, China was a um, an ally during World War II. And then after we sort of defeated and, and, and occupied Japan, sort of just took on their antagonisms. And, you know, about Obama and um, this pivot to Asia, where it seemed like he we just wanted to recreate what we were doing in the Middle East and East Asia. I don't know how that could be remotely seen as a good idea. Um, yeah, I think, in, in, you know, just look at our behavior. In addition, it's like to the idea that we're trying to force a kind of, I don't want to say reunification, a sort of like, renormalization of of ties between Korea and Japan despite the fact that that that, that antagonism is is you know almost un, un you can't recover from that until you know this the the Japanese address it properly exactly that at that's the what same that, that's time, what it's all about is address, is you know properly addressing that issue yeah but at the same time, while we're trying to smooth over that antagonism as if it it's just sort of inconvenient, um, we're we're trying to it seems to exacerbate the the division within Korea. Well, that's uh, the big that's the biggest holdup right now to uh, you know any kind of inter Korea peace agreement, and it, because the U.S. refuses to lift sanctions even for. Uh, projects that South and North Korea have agreed upon to demilitarize and you know to 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 get to get to some peaceful re resolution, um, you know they they can't move forward. Like you know, night two thousand eighteen. Like um, when I was there in in the last time I was in Korea, I, I was covering the summit between Kim Jong -un, Kim Jong Un and Moon Jae In in, in Pyongyang. I was in Seoul, and there was this agreement there, you know, to, um, you know, de basically a military to military agreement to, to, to remove a lot of guard posts and, you know, um, take away the, the, so the tension, reduce the tension on, on the DMZ and that has happened. Um, but they also agreed to things like linking their railroads, reopening a, uh, this industrial zone called Gaesong Industrial Zone that's in North Korea that's very close to the border uh, that was open for a while into one of the crises during the, uh, I think it was closed during the Park Geun-hye presidency. Uh, but, you know, South Korea and North Korea had both agreed, you know, to, to start these, restart these pro projects and, and especially like, the you know, the railroads that was seen as a very important thing. They had, a, they, they, they could only do a sort of symbolic, uh, ceremony where they, you know, shook hands about their plans for linking their railroads, but because of sanctions, nothing could nothing could happen. They, you know, the South Koreans couldn't cross in the north to work on their railroads, uh, and you know that's been blocked by 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 sanctions. And and as you see, even in the last couple of days, 
you see President Moon saying, you know, giving hints that he really wants to move forward on these North-South things and, you know, not make the U.S.-North Korea, you know, uh, conflict, you know, the centerpiece. We, you know, we let, okay, that, that can't be the thing that holds us back. We've got to move forward on these projects. They've been coming, he's been sending his top officials here, his National Security Advisor, Unification Minister, who have been in Washington, even in the last few days, trying to see if there's a way that the U.S. would, uh, you know, lift some sanctions, including U.S. sanctions and, you know, U.N. sanctions, uh, so certain p projects between North and South could could restart again. And, and that's very important for defusing the conflict between the two sides. But you have, you know, the... I was tweeting about this today, the U.S. ambassador in Korea, South Korea, Harry Harris, you know, he's, he, he says this almost all the time. He says, you know, you should not, you know, engage with North Korea without proper consultation with the U.S. You know, this is their country. You know, it's a the Korean War was between the two Koreas, right? Uh, I mean, they have a right to move forward, it seems to me, on anything they want to do to to, uh, you know, end the hostility, end the war, and, you know, move forward on a reconciliation and eventual some form of unification. But that's, that, you know, a lot of, I mean, North Korea sees the U.S. is blocking that, and the North Koreans are very angry at Moon Jae-in for, like, allowing U.S. actions to, to, to block those movements. Um, but there's a lot of anger within South Korea about that as well. I, I had no idea that Harry Harris was the ambassador. He's uh, he is he was like the former head of the UN Pacific P Fleet, right? Exactly, the Pacific Command. Pacific right. Command, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh, right. I, I I had no idea that he's now ambassador there. He's, he's um, awful. <laughs> yeah. By, by the way, the first ja Japanese American. Uh, uh, it's just uh, the you know the. It does really seem that you know this is really about American interests, not Korean interests, right. and uh, and I think that um, it's it's just real. It's just a really bad. I, I just feel like it's a very difficult thing for, particularly for Korean Americans uh, and Asian mm -hmm. Americans, and maybe we should we could pivot to this discussion a little bit. Um, you know, on this pod, you know, we we talk a lot about Asian American issues while. Right now, you and I are talking about issues that are taking place in Asia. Right. Um, and I think it's important because, you know, a lot of my Asian American friends and, and what's going on in Korea is relatable to a lot of Asians, um, including mm -hmm. like, you know, Filipinos, Chinese, uh, the, the presence of, you know, the U.S. military uh, and the relationship and the sort of and sometimes the antagonistic relationship um, that the U.S. has with Asia is a cause of, I think, a lot of anxiety for a lot of Asian Americans. And I, I suspect, and in my own life, I have confirmed that, you know, a lot of us Asian Americans are aware of this sort of bullshit and hypocrisy surrounding these um, foreign policy of America, but that we're, I think, scared of or, or loathe to express it um, because we think that it's anti-American to say this, or it's disloyal. And you, as a you're a, you're a white guy, and right. I think that it's important. You know, and, and I think that's important in a way because 
<clears throat> you don't have the fear of, you know, further racial racialized isolation because of your dissident views. But I want to know where that puts you in terms of your relationship to, you know, the concept of loyalty to America, to, to have dissident views on what America does. I think that's an important question for us to, uh, to ask. Well, to me, it's always been, you know, as American, I, I'm concerned about what my country does and what my country has done. I mean, you know, during Vietnam, I was... Uh, and I was in high school in Tokyo, and I remember my, actually my father helped organize a demonstration of Americans to protest the U.S. war in Vietnam. We marched on the U.S. embassy, and uh, boy, I'll tell you, I was I I was so hated in my school for doing that. Uh, you know, how dare you march against your own government in a foreign country? You know, you should be supporting you know U.S. forces and U.S. boys in Vietnam, and I'm like. We're laying waste to Vietnam. We're destroying Vietnam. We're bombing Vietnam to smithereens. You know, we're killing Vietnamese civilians all over the country. That's in my name, my government, my country. I'm an American. I'm going to stand up against what my country is doing. That's that's my first principle. But, you know, when I was growing up in, in Korea and Japan... And especially in high school uh, in Tokyo, you know, where there was a lot of, you know, business kids and from America. I went to an American school. There was you know, a lot of kids who were, their fathers were working for the embassy. Their fathers were working for the CIA. Their, their fathers were with big American corporations, banks, etc. There was an incredible amount of racism toward Japanese and, uh, and toward all Asians. And, and what the most common word used by a lot of American kids I knew toward Asians was the term gooks, right? You, you know, it's like yeah. we're fighting the gooks in Vietnam. John McCain's favorite word. <laughs> yeah, gooks. It's a terrible, terrible word. And, and it's, it's, it's like, you know, it's like the N-word, right? It's, it, this, is a, this is insulting. And they see all Asians like that. You know, if you're Vietnamese, you're a gook. If you're Japanese, you're a gook. Korean, you're a gook. They use gooks, the term Korea, as well. And I really, you know, felt I didn't, it was so, the, the, the ugliness often and arrogance of American kids I saw towards, you know, Japanese was, was awful. And, and I, you know, I was one, you know, one of a few kids who, American kids who really, you know, went against the grain on that. Um, and, and, and tried to fight it. Like, you know, don't, don't, don't use that term gooks, you know, that's, that's, that's the, the, they're, they're human beings. Right. And, and so that was, you know, what I did, you know, that's why I came out of it. Um, but you know, at the same time, uh, and I've always, you know, you know, I've, I've been to South Korea a lot in my reporting and I, I started going there a lot in the eighties, uh, under the authoritarian, you know, government of Chun Doo-hwan, uh, and then, you know, I've been back a lot in over the last 10 years, I've been, I've been there a lot. And my, my sense is like, you know, um, first of all, you know, I've uncovered, uh, like the story, you know, people are probably aware of the Gwangju uprising in South Korea, in 1980, when, you know, a whole city stood up against martial law, uh, forces in the U S intervened and, and helped the martial law authorities put down this citizens uprising. Uh, you know, I wrote a lot about that and my, my reporting on the U S role, the sort of hidden U S role 
in 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 in, in suppressing uh, the, the democratic movement and siding with authoritarian rulers against the democratic movement and the forces of you know workers and 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 you know students and citizens just struggling for a more democratic society um you know that my work has been really appreciated by people in korea and because you know they like to it's it's very important to have an american criticizing the american role um but it's, you know so as far as loyalty goes i just feel you know it's I'm loyal I'm by by expressing my dissidence and writing about the underside and the hidden history of the United States in, in countries like South Korea. Um, I am being loyal to my country because I'm I'm helping to help Americans understand, you know, why North Korea might build nuclear weapons or why South Koreans might go on the streets and and chant slogans against you know, the, the U.S. because of what happened in Guangzhou. I mean, it's, it's important, to, you know, to understand all that so we can support decent policies in, in these countries. So, you know, that's where I that's where I, that's where I come from. on it. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. That's very helpful. And I think um, it, it, it does clarify my, it, you know, or confirm some of the thinking I've had around this, because I think for the Asian American, um, there is a suspicion within ourselves that to the extent we hold dissident views about foreign policy in Asia, that that's a sort of um, view that we have as a function of racial self-interest. It's like, well, right. I, I, I care about my homeland, which I think is good. I think it's good to care about your homeland. There's no reason that we need divided loyalties. But I would say that that's not all there is to it. I think that we have to start, we Asian Americans should start seeing um, that a lot of these distant views are actually more in line with professed American values. Like when you're talking about Guangzhou and the American complicity in suppressing a pro-democratic movement, well, that's anti-American uh, in terms of the concept of American be America being um, a pro-democratic force um, around the world, right? So it's a, right. a certain kind of loyalty um, it, 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 it's an appeal, I think, to loyalty to kind of like um, professed American values. Whether those are actually put into practice is a different question. Well, here's an example um, of what you're talking about. I mean, during World War II, the U.S. Um, you know, put thousands of Japanese Americans in camps, right? Um, all, all, you know, mostly, mostly in the West. And a lot of Japanese in those camps... American, Japanese men uh, eventually joined the U.S. military, right? I mean, the most decorated yeah. unit was the yeah. Japanese American unit that fought. Yeah, four four two. Yeah, yeah. And and and, and I, I remember, you know, I've, I've read a lot about that period and you know the literature that's come out of that. And like, you know, in those camps, there was very nationalist Japanese Amer Japanese that they were like nationalistic about J J Japan. That were not necessarily pro-Japan, but they just didn't think that you know. Look, an American government imprisoned us in these camps, and we're just regular Americans. Why did they do that? I'm not going to go fight for the U.S. military. But a lot of these Japanese Americans that fought in that in that unit, uh, they, they 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 we're Americans, and we have a right. You know, we're going to protect our country and support the overall concepts of our country, even though we were in prison. That that took a lot of courage. That really took something because they were fighting fascism. 
around the world. Yeah, they, they were was, deployed uh, in Europe, right? Was, I think there were more too. Yeah, yeah, there were many. Some, yeah, that unit was deployed in Europe, but there was you know Japanese Americans were, were were served all over, and you know many served during the during the U.S. occupation of Japan. People that because because they they spoke Japanese, but but I but you know I think in recent years. Uh, I, I mean, for, well, if I just look at Korea, you know, Korean American organizations, Korean Americans as individuals have been very, a very powerful voice for peace in Korea. You know, you have, um, you know, Christy Nan, who's a you know, Korean American, uh, who, who started Women Cross DMZ to say, you know, let's, let, let's stop having men handle these affairs in, in, that are keeping the Koreas divided. Let's have women take the initiative and, and, and really, you know, press the issue of peace and that they've done and they put they put the issue idea. of Korea peace on the map and uh, you know it's become a very powerful force and the, you know not no other Korean American organizations because Koreans have uh, many have families that are divided as a result of the division of Korea they see it as an issue you know for the the, the, the sort of Korean diaspora as, as a way to support you know, ending a ending a war, <coughs> bringing a close to a war that killed so many Koreans, and and you know many Americans as well. But 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 they're they're Korean Americans have become a very important force in the movement for to 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 get some kind of negotiated peace in Korea. You know, for example, you know, moving from the armistice that just ended the fighting to an actual peace treaty uh, that 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 would lead to you know, a peace regime in the Korean Peninsula. So I, you know, and I, I don't pretend to, to speak for uh, Koreans or Korean Americans or Asian Americans or Asians, but I, I think it's important, to, you know, to, to, to really, as, as, as a you know, journalist, you know, to write about their role and to, and to focus on what they've done. I was there when women crossed DMZ, actually crossed the DMZ. I was there in the South Park. When they walked into South Korea, it was one of the most moving things I'd ever seen in my life. And I'm, I'm still, you know, moved by it because they really did change the, change the discussion <clears throat> about it. Um, but the last thing I'll say on this is that, uh, you know, in, in terms of like a white American, uh, you know, talking, uh, writing about Asia, like I'm often asked in, in, by people here in, in South Korea, like, well, what about U.S.? Do you agree that U.S. forces should be there? Or should should they be withdrawn? And I don't, you know, like I say, well, in my view, personally, I think U.S. troops should eventually leave South Korea. Um, there, I don't, you know, the South Korean military is actually quite powerful, and I think it's it would be powerful enough to fend off any kind of North Korean in attack if that ever happened by itself without U.S. support. But um, the U.S. and South Korea have a formal alliance, and it's up to the Korean people, the South Korean people, whether they want that alliance or not. And, you know, I've seen, you know, polls where, you know, probably about, you know, 60 percent or so of South Koreans still feel that the U.S., their alliance with the U.S. is, is important and, and they, they want to keep it. Um, you know, but to me, that's I, I'm not going to you know argue one with them one way or the other. It's up to South Koreans to decide whether they want that alliance. And I think you know there's there's a growing number of people there that believe that 
alliance has, is, is now playing a very negative role, is not helping in terms of the pro peace process or reconciliation process. But that's, that's, a, Korean, that's a Korean decision. And, and um, you know, I, I, I always hesitate to, to say this is what, you know, Koreans should do. I try to focus on, you know, what the Americans are doing and are, are not doing and, and to say, you know, let, let's change our policies uh, in ways that will support whatever it is that the South Koreans want to do. And I, and I do think that there is a growing sense uh, here in Washington, even among some conservatives, that it's time to stop this, you know, focus on on militarization in Asia, and and you know, you know, like support North and South Korea, their desire to 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 create a peace, and and to to reconcile and eventually unify. We should do everything we can to support that. That's why Korea, you know, Korea was split by outside forces. It was not a Korean decision to divide Korea at the thirty eighth parallel. You know, that was made by the U.S. With, a, with the cooperation of the Soviet Union at the time. They did not think Korea was ready for an independent, for independence. Yeah, I, I think that's a great note to, uh, uh, to end on. Okay. It's just, it's very eye-opening. It's very eye-opening, the kind of journalism that you and other kinds of journalists covering things from that perspective are doing. I think it's very helpful. Well, thank you. And, and needed. So, so I appreciate that. Thank you. I would love to continue this conversation at some point in the future. These are just topics that I, that I think uh, I would like to get into more uh, on this pod. So, yep. Well, thank you very much. Tim Chirac, everyone. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, man. Mm -hmm.